Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Audience worldwide, I'm pleased to say on Bloomberg Radio and TV, we can now head down to the White House and catch up with Jared Bernstein of the Council of Economic Advisers. Jared, it's always good to catch up, sir. Thank you for being with us. Let's just start here with a question that I think a lot of people will be wondering. Really solid payrolls report. The outlook is brighter. The vaccine timetable, you guys have accelerated it. Why on earth do we need a $1.9 trillion bill? First of all, it's great to see you too. Always enjoy catching up. Uh, Look, I think we need to get under the uh, hood of this jobs report in a second. We're always happy to see more people get uh, more jobs. But let's take a breath here and look at the bigger picture. This job market is still down nine and a half million jobs from a year ago. That's actually 800,000 jobs worse than the lowest point of the Great Recession. We learned today that the black unemployment rate is just below 10 percent, 9.9 percent. 69,000 educator jobs down. That's a million over the past year. Our state and local help from the American Rescue Plan directly targets that problem. So there is a lot of economic pain out there, and that hasn't changed because of this one print, especially, by the way, a print that was driven. Uh, 90% of those gains come from the very volatile leisure and hospitality sector, a sector that a couple of months ago shed half a million jobs. So let's get under the hood, let's take a breath, and let's recognize that many, many Americans are still in the throes of this crisis and need the help delivered by the American Rescue Plan. So, Jared, why do you think that that argument that you've just illustrated quite perfectly is not resonating with prominent Democratic economists? Uh, In fact, not only is it resonating with economists on both sides of the aisle, it's massively resonating with the American people, which I would argue are the most important group here, even if if I'm neglecting my own profession a bit here. (laughs) We're talking about uh, approval rates for this plan that are north of 70%. I just saw a number that was 75 or 76. And and bipartisan, by the way. You know this word partisanship, it, it means something different in Washington than in the rest of the country. This is a plan that whether you're a D or an R, you want to see the schools open. That simply doesn't happen in a timely fashion that's acceptable to this president without the American Rescue Plan. Distribution of the vaccine, getting shots in arms, as I mentioned, schools, providing checks, relief, unemployment insurance. By the way, unemployment benefits that expire in something like 11 or 12 days without the American Rescue Plan. The urgency of this plan is just as as big as it was yesterday, and the American people know that. Jared, let's pick up on that, because in many ways, yes, that is true, but also you are stating the obvious. If I was getting sent a $1,400 check by you and I was surveyed, I'd be approving it as well. No wonder there is a high approval rate. On The Economist, on The Democratic Economist, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, raising questions about this. Olivier Blanchard raising questions about this. And I have had economist after economist on this program with me raising well, the very same questions. Did their oh, views not matter? Now, let me just finish the question, Jared. Let me just finish, okay. finish the question quickly. You've said the sure. electorate matters. And of course they approve this. If you've lost the argument in financial circles and in markets, does that matter at all? Well, first of all, uh, the objection from Larry, for example, who is a a good old friend of mine to whom I uh, try to catch up with as often as I can, we disagree on this heating point. If you read what Larry is saying at all carefully, 
he is absolutely agreeing of the need for relief, the need to finally hit this virus with the knockout punch that has heretofore yep. eluded it, and finally get us to the other side of this crisis so we can launch a robust, reliable, and racially inclusive recovery. So there is definitely arguments about this heating question, and that has a lot to do more with the size of the output gap and the speed of the spend out and whether people are going to save or spend, and those are nuanced arguments that I'm happy to get into. But in fact, you know, th there are very few economists who disagree with the need for this plan. There's argument around the edges. Now, you said a second ago, you know, the people like it. Well, sometimes if the public, you know, north of 70% approve of a plan, that actually means it's a good plan. You don't have to overthink it, especially at a period where we're 9.5 million jobs down from where we were a year ago. If you were telling me we we're at full employment, we'd be having a much different discussion. The black unemployment rate is almost 10%. So the urgency of this plan is recognized by the American people in a way that we should pay attention to. Jared, there's a need for relief. Everyone agrees with that. I don't disagree with you. I'm not here to advocate a separate argument. It's about the composition of this plan. And more importantly for a lot of people, it's about the size and you know that and the size is absolutely massive. Secretary Summers, who comes on Bloomberg, has talked about this repeatedly as well. The worry, as you know, is this takes all the oxygen out of the room to secure an infrastructure plan down the road, to secure public investment. And you'll be overwhelmed if we do overheat. What gives you the confidence? What gives you the confidence that we won't overheat, that this isn't sure. big enough? Great question. So I'm going to get to that. Let me just first, though, address this targeting point. There are elements of this plan that reduce child poverty by 50 percent. That would be a massive success at a time when low-income families, many of whom are essential workers, are under tremendous pressure. Uh, this plan targets state and local governments that, as I just told you, have shed 1.4 million jobs, one million of those jobs in education. Now, heating versus overheating. Let me be very clear. Nobody is saying that the risks of economic heat are zero. In fact, we've already uh, seen, and you've reported, on some of the heat that's generated by, by expectation of this plan. Heat that I, by the way, would consider vitally important to an economy that's experienced much more deflation than, than inflation in recent years. Why am I confident to, uh, uh, against overheating? Well, for one, the output gap is much larger than many economists assume it is. And if you, if you look at some of the work, say, from Goldman Sachs, you'll find an output gap that's twice as large as some of the sort of inflationistas are saying. Secondly, the spend out is considerably slower than some folks believe. That is, according to the Congressional Budget Office, this does not spend out in one year, it spends out in two years. And that's important, both in terms of making sure the fiscal impulse is lasting and, making sh and, 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 and putting down overheating risks. Now, to be very clear about this, People will start getting checks very quickly. Yep. People will get unemployment insurance benefits very quickly. But some of the longer-term parts of the plan spend out uh, more slowly. Uh, finally, some folks are going to initially save some of these resources. That translates into a lower multiplier and less inflation. Is that a problem? No, I think it's actually a feature, not a bug. Because in times of great pandemic-induced uncertainty, families who usually have negative or, low, or, or, or zero savings rates need that kind of a cushion to help deal with the air pockets that they face over the terms of this crisis. Jared, that final point there is the difference between relief and stimulus, what those checks get used for. And you and I have spoken before and you've said it's relief and it's not stimulus. So help me understand this just a little bit better. How sure. do you calibrate who those checks go to based on where the need is and what the money is used for? And why do you come up with a number at, say, 75,000? Yeah. So first of all, let's let I think listeners may 
sometimes reasonably be confused. What do you mean relief? What do you mean stimulus? Well, so oftentimes stimulus is designed to get people back into the labor force as quickly as possible to spend out uh, and have higher multipliers on the kinds of, uh, of resources that we're providing. And definitely uh, a lot of that will happen. Our anti-eviction uh, resources in the, in the rescue plan get to people right away and help them cut down some of that uh, debt that they've been accumulating for, for, from rent. But others we've found when we've, when we've seen past examples of this initially save these resources because they, they can't go out and spend them as quickly as they want. And then when they hit an air pocket in their personal economies, that's when they spend. So having this cushion, this relief cushion is essential to them. In terms of the targeting of the checks, Congress recently ratcheted down the high end of the phase out of those checks so they phase out sooner. But there is no question if you actually look at the kinds of burdens that people face, if you look at some of the low savings rates that they went into, that a single family with 75K is facing hardship in this economy and they need those direct income payments just as much as some of the well-targeted, just as much as some of the more directly targeted to the poor payments that uh, I mentioned a minute ago, helping to cut child poverty by 50%. Jared, I hear you're fighting for this and I know you're passionate about it. What I don't hear is the same passionate fight around a higher minimum wage. And many people might sit here and ask the question, why aren't you fighting hard enough for it? Why don't you fight harder? Why aren't you negotiating? Why aren't you willing to give something up to secure it? What's happening? Uh, you, you know, now that you've raised the minimum wage, let me tell you that I have been fighting for that policy uh, for my whole career, which lasts I know. Uh, too many too many decades for me to get into. And the president of the United States, far more importantly than me, has been fighting for this ever since the campaign. And I want to tell you right here on Bloomberg TV that he is not going to stop fighting for that. He is committed to a $15 an hour minimum wage, a phasing in over a few years. He's going to continue to fight for that. And the people who say that that's somehow unrelated to, uh, to what's going on in the country, I think are just missing the boat. Uh, you've got millions of low paid essential workers working away, toiling away at a minimum wage that's set at $7.25 an hour. Yep. Now, if anybody who can hear my voice thinks it's that that's an adequate wage for, you've got an argument with myself and the President of the United States. Because uh, we believe that minimum wage should be raised. We need to figure out how to get from here to there. And trust me, that is going to be a, a, an ongoing focus of this White Let's House. Let's finish there on that road. Last time around, there was a willingness to drop taxes on companies to phase this in. Can we do that again? You know, this is neither the time nor place for that negotiation, but you are right that historically those kinds of things have been paired. I think there are many variations that we're going to have to work with Congress to get from here I to there. I understand you the won't negotiate with me. Are you willing to negotiate with them on that point, and are you? I'm really here for the economic analysis. The negotiators are a different group of people. What I'm here to tell you is that this nation can get to $15 an hour uh, in, uh, in, in a phase-out range and provide much-needed relief to people. It's a simple plan that, that, that has the intended consequences of raising the pay of low-wage workers without having distortionary effects on the other side. So full speed ahead on the minimum wage. Jared, let's catch up soon. It's good to see you, sir. Jared Bernstein you. of the Council of Economic Advisors. Thank you. Right now joining us, and this is the perfect guest to start on radio and TV, Savita Subramanian is a Bank of America. She has bulletproof skill sets out of Berkeley in mathematics and philosophy as well. Forget about the mathematics, Savita. This is a nuts jobs day. Give us the equity philosophy of Subramanian this morning. 
<laughs> the philosophy. Uh, you know, I think it's simple. I think that we saw a very strong run up in the market last year, anticipating an economic recovery and earnings recovery. And this year, we're not going to get much more on the multiple expansion side, but we are going to get the earnings. And that's where I think we that's what we need to watch this year is how strong earnings actually come in. I mean, we're penciling in something close to 20 percent earnings growth. But if we wow. see anything short of that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a blockbuster number for earnings. But I think what's fascinating is that the market multiple expanded even more than that last year. And, you know, Tom, this is kind of typical. I mean, the market generally anticipates the good news before it happens. And now what I worry about is that the bulk of news we're going to get is going to be less good. And it's more about, you know, kind of uh, inklings of inflationary pressure on margins. Do companies have the pricing power to pass this on to consumers? That I think is to be determined. So, so I think this is going to be really kind of a show me year in terms of earnings growth, um, you know, in terms of the fundamentals actually supporting a fairly lofty multiple on the S&P 500 right now. So Vita, just build on that, why we're so challenged on the S&P 500 at the index level. You had the year end price target of I think 3,800. We're at 3,780 yep. right now on future is why are we so challenged at the headline? Yeah, I think it's because of the constitution of the market. And we've talked about this a lot on your show. I, I think the S&P 500 is not a proxy for the U.S. economy. It's a proxy for low interest rates, disinflationary pressure, secular growth. It's much more defensively tilted than any other index you can look at. So I think the real risks this year are going to be in the S&P and even more so the NASDAQ. But small caps, you know, value stocks should still do OK as long as the economic recovery remains intact. I do worry as we approach the end of the year that the news is going to go from, you know, kind of pretty good to, to more negative. And I, I think what we start to hear about is how to fund this this big fiscal stimulus program. Maybe we start to hear more rumblings around tax hikes. Um, you know, I don't you know, in terms of the taper, I don't think if the Fed starts talking about tapering their their uh, asset purchase program, I think that'll be negative for risk assets. So those are the factors to watch as we as we progress forward in the year. But I think what we're watching now is just earnings. If inflationary pressure is enough to actually take a dent out of earnings, that would be negative. But if companies actually get pricing power, that I think is the big positive here. As you speak, I think about sort of a double whammy of risks. We've had a lot of investors come on this show and say that yields have not responded to the positive uh, sentiment that we've seen in equities, right? They haven't baked in that earnings growth of 20% that you're talking about. Now those yields are, those are starting <laughs> yes. to, they're creeping up at the same Pretty time that stocks have already priced those in and are priced to perfection and are subject to disappointments. How do you yeah. walk through those double whammies, the idea that yields could rise, hitting the relative valuation of stocks at the same time that we're still getting disappointments uh, with respect to earnings? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the way to think about investing this year is inflation protected yield. And I think there what you want to do is look for dividend growth stocks. This is one of the reasons I like financials. Financials offers relatively inflation protected dividend yield and cash return. Financials participates in economic recoveries, has a low payout ratio, has room to raise dividends. Um, other stocks like that in the consumer sectors and industrials, I think that's the way mm -hmm. to play the year. Don't get too fancy. Um, you know, look for cheap inflation protected dividend yield because we've already seen 
seen a run up in a lot of the low quality recovery plays. Now I think it gets a little bit more difficult in terms of how to how to position your portfolio. Savita, I do think. Yeah, go ahead. Well, sorry, I don't Tom. mean to interrupt, but I, well, it's like Lisa. I'm going to interrupt. Savita, uh, <laughs> tell me about revenue growth stocks. I, I mean, I get the yeah. earnings growth stocks. I get the cash flow, the dividend, da, 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 da. Everybody's talking, including Ethan Harris and Michelle, about, you know, a bigger, bigger, bigger economy. Am I right? Yeah. Did I learn in my philosophy as Subramanian that means revenue growth matters? Well, revenue growth and free cash flow growth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So we're moving from just a price to book driven, you know, buy the cheapest stocks on on anything to an environment where, like you said, you want to see the revenue growers. And I think what's really interesting this year is that we are seeing a market change in the sales acceleration stories. And it's it's an obvious point, but you know, last year was a very different market. We had tech as the real revenue growth, the stable, stable uh, revenue growth stories. This year we're seeing revenue growth expectations in very different pockets of the market, in consumer services sectors, in industrials and CapEx beneficiaries. So I think that's gonna be the pivot is moving from a growth and a tech dominated market under this stay at home environment that we've been in to a reopening play where, um, you know, some of these smaller, more beaten down cyclical companies really have that revenue acceleration that's going to drive uh, drive their their stock prices further from here. And interestingly, yep, one sector might be energy. Energy this week energy, up six yeah. percent, up thirty three percent year to date. How stretched do you think that story is? Look, I think energy is still a buy. And the reason is that if you look at positioning and valuations, they still suggest that your long only institutional fund managers are not necessarily moving to even an equal weight position. The world is still very, very underweight energy. And if the Fed is willing to accommodate inflation for a longer period of time, and we're, we're going to be in this late cycle type of market for a longer period of time than is normal, energy is one of the best ways to hedge against inflation. So I think the sector is still a buy until we get to a point where it looks a lot more yeah. expensive and the world has gotten there. Savita, we were just talking to Priya Misra over at TD Securities. She predicts a 2% treasury yield. If we get there, yes. how much more downside is there on big tech stocks? Yeah, no, I know Priya. And I think 2% is achievable. Um, so, I, you know, I think the, the downside to big tech is, is potentially... Um, you know, akin to what we've seen already. I think about it, we've seen a pretty dramatic move in rates. We've seen tech sell off, expect kind of a, another leg down, similar to what we've seen already. Um, you know, I think tech is ultimately longer term, uh, uh, you know, a long term growth story. It's a buy. But I do think that in the near term, as we see that cost of capital increase and in some of these long duration stocks could get hit by just pricing in that new discount rate on a on a DCF basis. Sorry, I got to my math side of That's good. <laughs> the I education like that. here. Very good. Philosophical. Savita, good to yeah. see you. We appreciate your time. Great to be here. As always, fantastic Thanks. to catch up. Savita Subramaniam there. Bank of America Securities Head of U.S. Equity and Derivative Strategy. It is time I get less distracted and look at Jobs Day. And I hope you agree, Ellen Zentner's wonderful to do this with Morgan Stanley. Ellen, you have reaffirmed a stronger GDB statistic. Talk about the backdrop of jobs as it links into your 6 and even 7% economic growth. So the backdrop of jobs is really important. I mean, we're passing more fiscal stimulus uh, this month. And that's going to continue to build the bridge, hopefully, to when jobs are really coming back hand over fist, because you need that bridge in order to have those government transfers help uh, households 
help workers that are still without jobs until we get those jobs back and we can replace that with labor income. So the income growth has to be there in order to drive consumption and GDP as high as we've got it. We don't think today's report is uh, going to be more than a trickle of jobs back. But I think in a couple of months, we're going to see that really barely. Okay. well, this is really important as we go from ADP to claims to the jobs report. Many people, Ellen, above you at one hundred and ninety eight thousand. How would you perceive and how does Morgan Stanley perceive markets will react to a Zentner one hundred ninety eight thousand? So I think the I'm glad you asked how markets react. Of course, from an economist standpoint, we'll bore you to death. The difference statistically between 60,000 and 198,000 is pretty much nothing when you think of the the wide standard deviations that are in this data. Uh, But the market right is looking for uh, any positive data uh, in order to continue to justify this march higher uh, in the 10 year. And so uh, if, the, if, the, if we get something above consensus, meaning so it goes beyond market expectations, so we get sort of that higher, especially like the 500,000, which is one of the top end uh, estimates from, from uh, Bloomberg contributors, uh, you know, certainly that's something that is bound to send the 10 year higher, right? The market is looking for things to justify this move. Now, is a higher 10 year justified? Absolutely. We're going to be in a completely different spot with the outlook looking much better. As, as Governor Brainerd ha- said earlier this week, the direction of travel is perfectly fine. The market should be pricing in a better outlook. It's just the volatility uh, and speed at which we get there that tends to be uncomfortable uh, for the Fed. Outside of the volatility of Thursday, Ellen, what should the Fed chair be uncomfortable with? right now that you think he's ignoring? Do you think he's being slightly tone deaf anywhere at all? Well, I don't think that he's being tone deaf, but I don't think he's sending the message forceful enough for markets. I think you did a good job of framing this uh, earlier on the show, talking about basically they don't speak the same language. The Fed can feel like they send a strong message. I mean, Powell's message, when I read it as an economist uh, yesterday, was Things are good. Things are getting better. There's e- there's even less downside risk to inflation. There's probably upside risk to inflation. And yes, it's transitory. But guess what? We're still not going to do anything. That is risk on. If that's not a yep. risk on message, I don't know what is. But it wasn't said forceful enough. So I don't think I think it just sort of went over people's heads that were that were watching. So the Fed needs to be much more forceful in this communication. And most likely he'll take advantage of that at the March 17 meeting when he does uh, a, a Q&A. But they're going to be challenged on this all year as the data continues to roll in. It's just confirming a good outlook. But the market tends to take that and want to take it even further. And I think you've nailed it. And Tom, I touched on this earlier. This is going to be the debate, not for the next couple of weeks. This is the debate for the next several months when those base effects start to kick in and we start to get that tug of war. And what I think would be really fascinating, and we haven't seen it yet, the real test of the Fed's credibility would come if we got a breakout at the front end of the yield curve because people started to believe the Fed would blink. And I don't see that yet. Pick your companies. Amazon. We spoke to Exxon yesterday. I know, John, you love the Delta Airlines interview. How do those companies perform given a Zentner 7% GDP? If growth gets better, good times, even if yields go higher. Ellen, and isn't that the story? If yields go higher because growth gets better, that's a good story. I just wonder if we start to get that challenge at the front end as the months progress, Ellen. If we do start to get a real tug of war, some real tension, and some belief the Fed could blink, even though they've told us what they expect and they've told us what they'll do when it happens, which is nothing. 
Right. So that's why I think it is going to be quite the communication challenge for them. I mean, one way that they can keep the front end pinned uh, is uh, uh, altering the timing or pushing out the timing of when the Fed draws down its balance sheet. You know, even if uh, the Fed starts uh, tapering in January of 2022, as we expect, uh, and you taper at every meeting, which would be in line with the pace that they uh, tapered at in 2013-2014, uh, you would be looking at the bulk of 2022 that it takes to finish tapering the balance sheet. They will not raise rates before they finish tapering the balance sheet. So there's only you know, so far forward that rate hikes can come. And so the front end can be addressed that way and through communication. We think at the March FOMC meeting, uh, even though they revise upward their forecast for growth, maybe show a little bit more inflation in the near term, uh, we still think that they're going to uh, fail to show a median uh, uh, placement on the dot plot of an expectation that they'll hike before the end of 2023. So that's going to continue to send yeah. a strong message uh, to markets. Ellen, just to tie this all together, there's a bigger idea behind everything that we're talking about, which is at what point does market turmoil or frankly a sell-off in riskier assets affect the underlying economy? And this is really a key question as we take a look at froth that's getting blown off the top, which might be healthy. So at what point should the Fed start to care about a sell-off in, say, stocks or a sell-off in credit if we don't necessarily see companies having to borrow money because they've already extended their maturities and there isn't that clear-cut financing transmission mechanism? Yeah, so it's a great question, Lisa. So um, essentially, they they care when they look at underlying financial conditions and they've, they've tightened in a way that threatens the outlook. And this is why, even though the 10-year the rising is fine, we should see a higher tenure. They don't like the speed or volatility uh, in, in movements in the tenure because it creates uncertainty. And the Fed likes to be certain about its outlook. So when you strip out the change in yields right now and you look at financial conditions elsewhere, they've just moved sideways. They've not tightened at all. And that's why Chair Powell uh, can sound comfortable uh, about the increases in the tenure because there's not any sort of spillover effects that would affect the economy. You mentioned the stock market and credit. Stock market, low on their list of concerns. It doesn't have a strong tra transfer mechanism to the rest of the economy. Credit does. So, uh, you know, yes, uh, high yield uh, uh, is still um, performing okay, right? But if spreads, uh, uh, even in high yield, widen, funding levels are not as favorable, and that starts to affect other uh, up the, the credit quality chain and starts to drag out IG spreads, right? That has an immediate upfront impact on the economy, especially the labor market and with long tails. That's when the Fed gets concerned and that's what happened in late 2018. And that's when I think you get a very, very different Chairman Powell. Ellen, great to catch up as always. Good to mm. see you. Ellen Zentner, the wonderful Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley, the chief U.S. economist, looking for 6.5% GDP growth in 21 and 5 in 22. Compare that oh. to the Fed at 5 and 3.7. Let's bring in Priya Misra, TD Securities, Global Head of Rate Strategy. Priya, let's just start at the top. A new forecast, 2% on a 10-year, year-end. What was it before and why the change? 
So we were looking for 150 or 145 to be precise before yesterday. Why we changed it was we heard from Chair Powell that he wasn't worried about the moves that happened over the last couple of weeks, which I would argue only part of that moves was for healthy reasons. The other part was technical, was supply fears, was fear that the Fed might step away and we have a ton of treasuries to take down. And we just heard from Chair Powell that it's not disorderly enough, that this is not tightening in financial conditions. So the market's going to tantrum some more. And, you know, I think the market is looking ahead. I think every market is looking to the end of COVID. But at the end of COVID, we've got a certain post-COVID normal, but we also have a lot of treasuries. So I didn't really move the front end as much. I think the Fed is going to be, has a really high bar to hike. But to taper, they have a, you know, a shorter bar to hike and we have a lot more supply. So it's really the long end that I think is going to sort of try and force the Fed's hand, but we're not there yet. So, you know, I think rates are going to keep rising until we get that disorderly uh, market functioning or we get that persistent tightening in financial conditions. Yeah. Clearly, we're not there yet. Priya, I think it's fair to say that that seven-year auction last week was somewhat disorderly. We've got 30-year bonds coming out next week, $24 billion worth, $38 billion worth of 10-year notes as well. To what degree are you concerned about that extra supply coming in the next week, given what's been happening in this market over the last couple of weeks? I am very nervous. I mean, I think we were all looking for the Fed chair. We didn't get that support. The market's going to set up. So I can't say that the auction will be awful. I mean, we know that auction's coming up. I think you're going to get it once payrolls is out of the way. We don't have any more Fed talk there on blackout. I think the market's going to set up for that auction. So expect to see yeah. higher rates into the, uh, the auction. But you know what? There's another, there's a 20 year right after. And then within a week, we'll have two five sevens again. So it's just the pace of supply here is so high that I think every auction is going to be a stress point for the market. Do you, Does it spill over into every other market? I think that's the question. Do you correlate real yield into your 2% call? Do you go from a negative 0.64 out to, let's say, 0%? Can you say that? I think zero to me is really hard to see. I think the Fed, you know, at that point, it's going to start to impact the real economy. Right. Uh, but, you know, we are expecting a little bit more on the inflation front. I think you get that reopening-related you know, catch up demand is going to help inflation expectations. But I do have higher real rates by the end of the year, still negative, but, you know, negative 25, negative 30. I think maybe financial conditions can just about handle that. I think much higher or positive yeah. is, is going to be very hard. Priya, we're waiting for your comments on the plumbing. We're looking out at the 10-year duration and the measurement of the 10-year duration and the overnight and the repurchase market is extraordinary. All would suggest absolutely historic. Is this a big deal of concern or does this get solved as more issuance comes out? I think it gets, so I think specifically for the 10-year repo that's trading negative 3% historic, um, I think that gets solved as supply comes in. For the front end plumbing, there's a separate issue where we have a lot of reserves in the system. Hopefully the Fed eases the SLR constraint. I think we need more for those very front end rates to rise. There's a big TGA balance. So I think mm -hmm. very front end rates stay low, but the specific point you're raising, the specialness in the repo contract for the 10 year, I think that will ease. Right. We have a ton of supply. Lisa, this is absolutely critical. And I want to point out that our true expert on this, Ira Jersey, agrees 
disease with Ms. Misra. Yeah, the idea that it will remedy itself. But it's sort of interesting if you look at the technicals underpinning this, and I'm not going to get into it. But Japanese investors were selling a lot of those uh, off-the-run treasuries, which raises a question, not about the repo market, Priya, but in general, who's going to buy all of this debt that's coming online? You said that every auction is going to be a stress point going forward. Real rates perhaps rising, not because of inflation expect expectations going up, not because of necessarily even growth, but just because sheer supply is outstripping demand. Where is the demand going to come to on the edges if the Fed is not coming in and picking up more? Right. So if we look at last year, U.S. banks were very large buyers. They're flush with reserves. They had the SLR exemption. So they actually had a capital exemption for buying treasuries. I hope that's extended. That That's supposed to run out at the end of March. So I think banks will step in. At some point, asset managers will step in. But this is why real rates will need to rise because you have to attract people from other asset classes. I think the, the, the saddest thing about the treasury market is it's losing some of the hedging property. When equities fall, rates don't fall. So so if I'm looking for the best hedge, really, it's hard for me to get too excited about the 10 year at 150 unless now you're at 2% and there's a lot more room for it to decline, which is one of the underpinnings for why we think rates will keep rising. If the Fed steps away, really have to attract other buyers from other asset classes. Priya, let's get everyone to turn the volume down. LIBOR. Just a final word on LIBOR. What's happening, Priya? Well, What's absolutely not. Not raise the LIBOR down because we just heard from the IBA a couple of hours ago that they are ending. So I think those of us, you know, in the five stages of grief, if you were in the denial stage, you got to move out of that stage because we now have an end date. Right? It's like the death notice has been given. I mean, it's something some of us have been working on for years, but today was pretty monumental in the sense we know that sterling LIBOR will end at the end of this year. Yen LIBOR ends at the end of this year. Dollar LIBOR will definitely end but at the end of uh, June 2023. Deeply so emotional, John. Priya, thank you. Priya Misra. <laughs> thank you. I mean, Securities. It's, it's a new LIBOR OIS. A great strategy. Oh, dear Lord. Priya Misra over cocktails can be in a conversation to deadly silence with a conversation yeah. on LIBOR. Well, I promised Priya we'd get She's it She's right. There, it's a huge deal. And She's right. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.